I love gay people. I'm gay. Or they say, I hope one of your children turns out to be gay. I'm like, I hope they all turn out to be gay. You know? I want them to be happy as much as I'm happy. You know what I mean? But what I don't want them to be is a filthy... Welcome to God is Open. I'm your host, Christopher Fisher. Today on God is Open, we are going to be talking about Josephus. Now, Josephus is a very important character because he's a first century witness to the life and times of Judaism. He has a large volume of work, and he's a Pharisee. He identifies with the Pharisees, and he has a religious background. So he tells us all sorts of theological trends current in Judaism at that time. He gives us a very good picture of what it looked like to be a Jew during the first century. Of course, he was involved with the rebellion against Rome, the downfall of Jerusalem. He becomes a slave. He becomes a military advisor to the Romans. A lot of people think he's a traitor or a turncoat, but he writes these works as an apology to the Romans, as uh, something that describes and defends Judaism in the mind of a Roman audience so that they can identify with and understand what's happening in Israel, who Israel is. He writes the histories of the Jews, which actually goes through the Bible. So Josephus's commentary on the Bible, which is in reality his reworking of all the biblical texts, is about the earliest biblical commentary we have on books like the book of Genesis. Joseph retelling the same stories. We see his commentary, we see his theology exposed in how he retells these stories. So Josephus is a very interesting read. He's uh, a little bit of a fatalist, a little bit of an open theist. He's probably a typical Jew, a typical Pharisee. And we see that in how he describes things. So let's hear him talking about his own life. He writes, The family from which I'm derived is not an ignoble one, but has descended from a line of priests. So Josephus is a priest. He had a religious education. And let's learn about how he grew up. He brags a little bit about him being 14 and everyone coming to him with questions and, and him uh, exploring all these religions. So we'll jump to when he's about 16 years old. And when I was about 16 years old, I had a mind to make trim of the several sects that were among us. These sects are three. The first is the Pharisees, the second is the Sadducees, and the third of that is that of the Essenes. As we have frequently told you, for I thought that by this I might choose the best, if I were once acquainted with them all, so I contended myself with a hard fare, and underwent great difficulties, and went through them all. Nor was I content myself with these trials only, but when I was informed that there was one whose name was Banus, he lived in the desert, and used no other clothing than grew on trees, and had no other food than what grew of its own accord, and bathed himself in cold water frequently, both by day and by night, in order to preserve his own chastity, I imitated him in those things and continued with him three years. We see already his uh, his love of the scenes. He likes this uh, ascetic life where where you're denying yourself pleasures and things like that. And so he does have some glowing reviews of the scenes. But his fatalism works more like that of the Pharisees. When he starts describing these various sects, he describes the Pharisees as thinking that the future is partially open and partially closed. Whereas the Sadducees, they're the libertines. They believe that God doesn't force our individual decisions in any event. We live with free will. Uh, things aren't fated. Whereas the Essenes, they're the more deterministic sect. 
So let's see what he says here. And so when I had accomplished my desires, I returned back to the city, being now 19 years old, and began to conduct myself according to the rules of the sect of the Pharisees, which is of akin to the sect of the Stoics, as the Greeks call them. And so this, this uh, phrase here has been disputed, whether he's saying, I now identify as a Pharisee, or if he's saying that I lived in the manner like these guys, but I wasn't one of these guys. I think more likely that he is identifying with the Pharisees. He writes like a Pharisee. In his work, he, he, he puts in phrases that would make me think that he's identifying with the Pharisees, how he describes the Pharisees. So let's turn to see how he describes these various sects. We're turning now to Antiquities of the Jews. We were in the life of Josephus. He describes these sects various times in various ways, but we're in Antiquities right now. He says, Now for the Pharisees, they say that some actions, but are not all, are the work of fate, and some of them are in our own power, and that they are liable to fate, but are not caused by fate. So the Pharisees here believe that the future is partially opened and partially closed. The Pharisees are open theists. And uh, I, a good example of this, there's there's a paper that talks about how things are faded, different options, and different Jewish commentators throughout history. And uh, they, they talk about how God might fate an event, but use various means to accomplish it based on the actors present for the act. And one example is uh, trying to kill a guy. If God wants this guy dead or this guy is fated to die, he says this, R. Simon B. Lakewish opened his discourse with these two texts. This is coming from the paper, Josephus on Fate, Free Will, and Ancient Jewish Types of Compatibilism, which talks about the Jewish idea of compatibilism, how these Jewish sects all accepted free will, and then also talked about fate. You'll see this phrase in Josephus on and off that God uh, controls all things or God causes all things. But I don't think he's talking like a Calvinist would. I don't think he's talking about God's controlling this one leaf over here in the middle of the island that doesn't have a really an effect on anything. I don't think that's what's going on here. I think something more like what Josephus just described to us is happening where there's certain major things that are faded. And then God's using free will actors to bring that about, and he has various options in order to accomplish that. And here's the example that I started. We'll, we'll finish reading that. And if a man lie not in wait, but God cause it to come to hand, then I'll appoint for you a place whether he may flee. This is Exodus 21:13. And as it says in the proverb of the ancients, out of the wicked comes forth wickedness, but my hand shall not be upon you. Of whom does the former text speak? Of two persons who had slain one in heir and another with intent, there being witness in either case. The Holy One, blessed be he, appoints them both to meet at the same inn. He who has slain with intent sits under the stepladder, and he who has slain in heir comes down the stepladder, falls, and kills him. Thus, he who had slain with intent is duly slain, while he who had slain in heir goes into banishment. So in this idea... God uh, fated this event to happen. This guy's going to get killed. He's going to get killed by a certain person. And so then God looks at uh, the intent of the person, if it's a good person or a bad person, and then makes puts the situation together to make it happen. It's not like the situation's faded, but there's multiple options for the same outcome.
Another example is this. They said to our Akibia, Behold, Scripture says, With regard to King Hezekiah, I will add unto your days fifteen years. He replied, The addition was made from his own original allotment. You may know that this is so, since the prophet stood up and prophesied, 1 Kings 13.2 Behold, a son shall be born to the house of David, Josiah by name, while Manasseh, Hezekiah's son, Josiah's grandfather, had not yet been born. And the rabbis, how would they respond? Is it written from Hezekiah? It is surely written to the house of David. He, Josiah, might be born either from Hezekiah or from any other person of the house of David, but not necessarily from Hezekiah. You notice that flexibility and how prophecy is written. So this is a very acute point. This is a very good point. So if prophecy is written in vague fashion without being super specific, you have to understand that there's multiple ways. There's all sorts of routes that one can go about to fulfill that. And they're pointing this out, that the prophecy prophecy is coming from David's line. It's not actually predicting who Josiah's actual uh, lineage was directly. And in this way, God has options to get this fulfilled. God has options. God can fulfill these faded events. Like It's not like a real faded events. Like there's a certain event in the future that must come true. But there's some sort of truth in the future that can be brought to fulfillment through multiple ways, which there's an active striving to get fulfilled. That's this idea of Jewish compatibilism. Jewish compatibilism, not Calvinistic compatibilism, where God's controlling every action, every falling leaf. Instead, God uses free will creatures to the extent he can to bring about major points of interest in the lives of people, the lives of nations, but people still have free will. People are not controlled meticulously as in Calvinism. And this is the type of fatalism that Josephus seems to adopt. Let's go look at a few of his works and writings that, that point us to this. Within Josephus, we don't get a, any sort of uh, good, strong indication that he believes that God knows all things meticulously in the future. Although God has plans and intents for the future and even has some sort of predetermination of things to come, we don't get a sense that Josephus thinks that God has all future propositional knowledge of all future propositional truths, anything like that. We do see throughout his writings that God has an all-seeing nature. God sees everything to judge it. He says this, I mean, unless they be taught, first of all, that God is the Father and Lord of all things, and sees all things, and that hence he bestows a happy life upon those who follow him, but plunges such as do not walk in the paths of virtue into inevitable miseries. And we see this repeated over and over. God has an active viewing of the world. God actively watches the world and judges people accordingly. We'll turn first to the fall in Genesis. This is what Josephus writes about that. God therefore commanded Adam and his wife that they should eat of all the rest of the plants, but abstain from the tree of knowledge and foretold to them that if they touched it, it would prove their destruction. But while all living creatures had one language, at that time a serpent, which then lived together with Adam and his wife, showed an envious disposition. So in Josephus's mind, there's a talking snake in the garden, and uh, there's a talking snake because of all animals speak. And this is just a, a particularly bad snake. 
And so this, this snake tricks Adam and Eve into eating this apple. And then what does it dis describe of God? It says, this behavior surprised God. When God finds out about what had happened, God is surprised. So in Josephus's theology, at least in retelling this incident, God can be surprised. What's particularly interesting is the next sentence that comes after that. And he, this is God, asked what was the cause of this, that his procedure, and why he, that before delighted in the conversation, why he did now, now fly and avoid it. And so in Josephus's mind, the interaction in the Garden of Eden is God trying to find out knowledge from Adam. What, what, are, what are you doing? Why are you doing this? And then Adam has to respond and explain to God stuff that God does not know. So at least in this instance, he is describing divine nations, which is not incompatible with how he describes God as seeing all things on earth, because as Jewish commentators note in the future that it could be the case that God sees all major events, but doesn't know the particulars, the details. Now we'll turn to the story of the flood in Josephus. Josephus just has God seeing that man became wicked, and then God deciding to kill them all, and an intent in God's mind from the outset is remaking humanity. So this is a prearranged plan that's concurrent with God's idea to destroy the earth. It's not more of an afterthought as Klein argues in the biblical stories in Genesis 6. It says, Now God loved this man for his righteousness, yet he only not only condemned those other men for their wickedness, but determined to destroy the whole race of mankind and to make another race that should be pure from wickedness and cutting short their lives and making their years not so many as formerly lived, but 120 only. And so he sees this 120 reference in Genesis 6 as a be-all, end-all, hard limit on man's lifespan, which is not unreasonable. Turning next to Genesis 22, how he treats this, Josephus writes that this is a test in order to figure out uh, Abraham's loyalties to him. In Genesis 22, this is the test of Abraham, where Abraham brings Isaac up onto the mountain to slay him, and then God stops him. And this is what is written. It was not out of a desire of human blood that he was commanded to slay his son, nor was he willing that he should be taken away from him who he had made the father, but to try to temper his mind, whether he would be obedient to such a command, since therefore he was now satisfied as to that his uh, alacrity and the surprised readiness he showed in this his piety, he was delighted in having bestowed such blessings upon him. Of course, at this point, God had already disp uh, given blessings to Abraham. People argue that, oh, the promise was given before this. As if God can't find out different ways to fulfill promises or can't reverse promises to, to bad people, people who reject him, as we see throughout the Bible. But in Josephus, this is a confirmation. This is a test to see how Abraham is going to act in regards to God. And he passes the test. In Josephus' mind, God tests to know. Turning now to Joseph being sold by the brothers. In this event, the speech by Reuben is greatly increased by Josephus to try to explain his reasoning and how he convinced the brothers not to kill Joseph. And the speech, this is what he says, that they would also fear God, who is already both a spectator and witness of the designs they had against their brother, that he would love them if they abstained from this act and yielded to repentance and amendment. 
But in the case they proceeded to do the fact, all sorts of punishments would overtake them from God for this murder of their brother, since they polluted his providence, which was everywhere present, which did not overlook what was done either in the deserts or in the cities or wherever a man is. There ought he supposed that God is also. And so in Josephus's mind, uh, God is watching the world. God is giving active providence, rulership over it, and watching the acts of people. If they do bad, then God punishes them. And so in this way, they can't just kill Joseph in the middle of the wilderness, or else God will take revenge against them. This is not God forcing any murders. People have free will to do things, and then God responds accordingly, because God is the ruler, the sovereign of the world that's within his prerogative to do that and he will in fact do that flash forward to moses we're looking in exodus where moses is born and the egyptians want to kill him for being a son of israel and this is what josephus writes but no one can be too hard for the purposes of god though he contrive ten thousand subtle devices for that end for this child whom the sacred scribe foretold was brought up and concealed from the observers appointed by the king that he foretold him did not mistake in the consequences of his preservation which were brought to pass in the manner following a few interesting things are going on here there is some sort of reference to moses being a prophesied prophet a prophesied intermediator between god and man which might be our Deuteronomy reference that we had in the previous podcast. That could be what's going on here. Also, the idea that God can subvert. And God can subvert human expectations. God can do things. God is actively working to make these things come true. And man can't thwart that. So in Josephus's mind, God can act. Man has free will. There's a conflict where God is working to get his things accomplished despite the best efforts of man. God's purposes will prevail. This is not a fatalistic, as in Calvinist fatalism, where God's controlling all things. Instead, it's more of the Jewish idea of compatibilism, where some things are fated, some things are not. As open theists say, the future is partially open and partially closed. And so open theists are tend to be tend to be the pharisees of today which is not a bad thing the pharisees weren't bad people they were the popular people the popular religion at the time they were pharisee followers of jesus heading back into genesis real quick i forgot to talk about the incident of sodom and how josephus treats that in this incident josephus has god resolving to destroy sodom bringing the angel messengers to sarah and uh, abraham and then informing abraham what he's going to do and then abraham of course objection objects that you can't kill the righteous with the wicked and then josephus retells the story as if god just tells him oh there's not even 10 righteous people and so it's okay to destroy and abraham agrees with that there's no back and forth there's no abraham giving his input into god and god accepting that input all of it seems to be a predetermined narrative that God's going to destroy it. God already knows how many righteous people there are in Sodom and has resolved to destroy it and informs Abraham of the fact that there's not that many righteous people in Sodom. And that's the end of that. And so the, the retelling of the story 
is very interesting. It could be that Josephus doesn't want any sort of uh, event that looks like God is accepting ideas of righteousness from his creatures, taking input from outside himself. We'll see how he handles uh, 1 Kings 22. When dealing with 1 Kings 22, in which Micaiah actually prophesies against Ahab, first telling the lie that Ahab's going to succeed, he's pressed by Jehoshaphat, and then he says, well, God was in heaven, and God had all these angels and queried them how to trick Ahab into going to war, and uh, they, they suggested lying to all these prophets, and God approved that plan. So that's the biblical account. In Josephus, that is entirely absent. In, in Josephus, Micaiah is already in jail because he, he insists on telling the truth at all costs. He's in jail because he prophesied against what all those other prophets had prophesied and said that Ahab would be slain and uh, his people destroyed and God was going to punish him, things like that. And uh, he never tells the lie. He never tells this instance in which God is receiving advice from outside himself how to trick Ahab into battle. Instead, it's a more tame version. Of course, he's, he's recharacterizing God in this story to one that's more palatable to the sensibilities of his audience, and maybe even to Pharisees at his time, maybe even to Jews at his time. It's more palatable if God does not use lies in order to trick people into actions that he wants those people to take. It's more palatable if God doesn't accept advice from outside himself, querying people on how to do things and then implementing those plans. Those things are absent in Josephus. Here's Josephus' conclusion. And as what things were foretold should happen to Ahab by the two prophets came to pass, and we ought thence to have high notions of God, and everywhere to honor and worship him, and never to suppose that what is pleasant and agreeable is worthy of belief before what is true, and to esteem nothing more advantageous than the gift of prophecy, and that the foreknowledge of future events which is derived from it, since God shows men whereby we ought to avoid. We may also guess from what happened to this king, and have reason to consider the power of fate, that there is no way of avoiding it, even when we know it. So easily this is not a Calvinist notion, as we've seen already, that God becomes surprised, God, God uh, learns and tests people to understand them. It's probably more likely going on here, a Jewish compatibilistic thing where the future is partially open and partially closed, like the example of the death, which could be affected by either someone who's malicious or someone on accent. The event itself is faded, but there's multiple ways to get there. And in the same way that we can't subvert, quote unquote, fate, that if God's intending for this thing to happen, that thing will materialize. Under the same idea, Josephus is talking about the Babylonian captivity. He writes this, we have said thus much because it was sufficient to show the nature of God to such as are ignorant of it. So now he's going to describe the nature of God, that it is various and acts in many different ways. So God God has flexibility, he has innovation, and that all events happen after a regular manner. And so this, this t seems to be like a cause and effect type of claim here. In their proper season, and it foretells what must come to pass, it is also sufficient to show the ignorance and incredulity of men, 
whereby they are not permitted to foresee anything that is future and are without any guard exposed to calamities so that it is impossible for them to avoid the experience of those calamities. On the face of it, this, this does sound Calvinistic that uh, all things happen, things that are in the future must come about. But it's not necessarily what Josephus is talking about here. He's not necessarily talking like a Calvinist. A few more data points we're going to look at, and then we're going to summarize and close here. In Against Apron, he writes this, And when Moses had first persuaded himself that his actions and designs were agreeable to God's will, he thought it was his duty to imprint above all things the notion upon the multitude. For those who have once believed that God is an inspector of their lives will not permit themselves in any sin. God, God is actively watching the world, you know. Moses informed them that it was impossible to escape God's observation. God is sitting and watching the world, even in any of our outward actions or in any of our inward thoughts. Moreover, he represented God as unbegotten and immutable. This is like one of the two times that Josephus refers to God as immutable. It's not quite clear what he's referencing in what respect. Probably like that God doesn't change character-wise. Of course, in Josephus, prayer is a very real thing. Prayer can affect God. Prayer, it has effect. It can affect God. And so I don't think this is absolute immutability of the pagans. Josephus, though he does talk about Plato, he doesn't seem to quite understand Platonism. He, he, doesn't, uh, he doesn't internalize and understand it. But we can pull up the quote of his where, uh, he, like so many other people, says, oh, Plato was a monotheist and, of course, had to write in cryptic ways in order to not get executed by the people at his time. That was a pretty common trope, if you will, about uh, Plato, and Josephus does echo it. Josephus kind of claims Plato as a fellow fellow monotheist in his same tradition. It's always good if the superstars of philosophy are on your side. And that's what the Christians and Jews attempted to do with Plato, some more accurately than others. The people who are actual Platonists tend to understand Plato's writings a little bit more than Josephus, who appears not to know anything about Platonism. Really funny thing is I, I was researching Josephus one day and then I pull up a book, I start reading it about the creation of the world, and it was just all this Platonic nonsense. I'm like, what the heck? Was Josephus a Platonist? And then I looked and, I, oh, I pulled up a book by Philo instead of uh, by Josephus. These works are diametrically opposed. Josephus is not a Platonist. He's just a normal Jew living in normal Judaism. Philo was out there on the fringes writing about things that was outside the scope and boundaries of normal Judaism for an Alexandrian audience in a philosophically based location. Josephus was not so. His concerns are a little bit more trivial. His concerns are more it, down on the scale, more layman-like. And uh, you can really read it in the differences between their two writings. Joseph, Josephus was not a philosopher. He was not a Platonist. He was a normal Jew. Josephus's second quote about the immutability of God is again in Against Apron. Thereas they ought to have their opinion about God that worship is due to him always and immutably the same. Again, it's not clear what exactly he's referencing in what way God is always and immutably the same. So in conclusion, we're going to kind of read a couple excerpts about Josephus's ideas of providence and fate. 
This is coming from the religion of Flavius Josephus. The practical extension of this doctrine of the one God, Father, and Creator lies for Josephus in his theory of divine providence. Here he rings true the religion of the Hebrew Bible from Genesis to Chronicles. For him, the history is the philosophy of divine activity. And in great things and smaller, author never wearies in pointing out the care of God over all his works. This capital doctrine, Josephus repeatedly relates, was this distinguishing characteristic of the Pharisees as distinguished from the Sadducees, the former. He accordingly compares with the Stoics, and later he might have aligned with the Epicureans. The constant word he uses for providence is pronomia, forethought, and the word idea appears in almost every leading narrative. This providence is universal, not only for God's people. From the antidote of Titus's remarkable escape from the surprise attack made upon him when advancing upon Jerusalem, Josephus deduced that both the crisis of war and the perils of the king are a care to God. That's the providence of God. He observes this providence in the history of Joseph. God exercised such a providence over him and such great care of his happiness as to bring him the greatest blessings ever out of what have appeared to be the most sorrowful condition. So God's using act of providence to control the fate of the world in Josephus. He might indeed have regarded his illustrious namesake as a type of himself, for he is consistent in his expression of the divine providence over his own life, a belief that is not to be too readily attributed to his particular conceit, for it is the characteristic of all piety. Thus the shipwreck in the Adriatic, he, with some eighty others, was saved on a Syrian ship by the providence of God. An intersecting parallel in circumstances and religious theory to the story of Paul's shipwreck. Skipping forward, but along with this most religious theory goes another point of view that sounds almost pagan. In the story of his amazing escape from the hole where he had taken refuge after the fall of Jopata, his companions, much against his own will, resolved to kill one another by lot as not to fall alive in the hands of the Roman. He and one other remained to the last, and the two decided not to carry out the compact to the end. So he survived, quote, he says, quote, whether we must say by chance or whether by the providence of God, unquote. And this doctrine of fate plays a considerable part into his notion of the administration of the universe. So what do we make of all of this? Josephus is a normal Jew surviving at the time of first century Judaism. He cares about God and God's application of providence to the universe. In Josephus's mind, God is actively working with the universe. He's seen things happen and controlling those things to the extent to bring about purposes, and which he often conflates with fate. Sometimes he uses fate in the Greek notion, but you have to look at context for that. But he associates this providence with fate. God is actively working to get his goals accomplished. And in this way, prophecies of the future events can be told. Often these prophecies are meant to be subverted, but when they're not, God brings them to their ends. And God is actively working in the lives of people to make these things happen. And so there's a lot of ways to do this. It's not Calvinism. Joseph is not a Calvinist. He is a normal Pharisee who believes that the future is partially open and the future is partially closed. And this is opposed to Jesus, who says, yeah, there's no rhyme or reason sometimes for the death of people. God's not controlling events to that level of meticulousness. Anyways, check out the various resources that I have quoted. The Religion of Flavius Josephus, 
Josephus on fate, free will, and ancient Jewish types of compatibilism. That one's actually really good. I'll pull that up and read that. Read Josephus's own works, The Life of Josephus and Antiquity of the Jews, and Josephus Wars, in which you get a high dose of what seems to be typical Judaism of that time frame. Anyways, questions or comments, put that down below. Start a thread on the God is Open Facebook page. Thank you for listening. Oh, 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 oh,